listening to UWA Alumni's Pursue Inclusion podcast series. Thanks for downloading this episode. UWA is committed to an inclusive society where every life is respected as unique and valuable. Visit our website at pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au to see how you can join with others in the UWA community to create positive change. Welcome to the Pursue Inclusion UWA podcast series. This is your host, Dr. James Kelly. I'm the host of Executives After Hours podcast, as well as the forthcoming book, The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. On today's episode, I have the pleasure to talk to Sophie Stewart. Sophie is the campaign coordinator for social reinvestment, as well as the director at Swim for Refugees. Hello, Sophie. How are you? Oh, I'm so good. So glad to be here, James. Awesome. Can you just quickly give the audience just a 10,000-foot view of these two different organizations that you're a part of? (laughs) Yeah, I sure can. So I'm from Perth, Western Australia. If you're not from Australia, you probably have no idea where I live, but it's a big city on the West Coast. And I... (laughs) I work, one, I work with Social Reinvestment WA, so I run a campaign for them about closing the gap on Aboriginal incarceration here in Western Australia. And what does that mean? We, um, yeah, so we basically, in Western Australia, we imprison Aboriginal people at a rates, some of the highest rates in the entire world, certainly the highest in our country. To put it into perspective for any global listeners, um, we, we incarcerate Aboriginal people in our state at a rate nine times higher then black South Africans were imprisoned under the apartheid regime. So it's a really, really serious issue. And with kids, it's even worse. 78% of the kids in our prisons are Aboriginal, but they're only 3% of the population, so it's hugely disproportionate. And that's for a whole lot of different reasons, but I work with a coalition of different of 17 different organisations trying to change that, and that's led by Aboriginal people. So I work under two Aboriginal chairpersons who are kind of driving this change. And yeah, the second thing I do to give you some more brief look is the Swim for Refugees program. Um, So I run a program where volunteers teach people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds how to swim, which if you've ever been here um, is a pretty important skill. I know you have James, but we live um, on the Swan River. Most of our like right along the coast of like of the Indian Ocean with Cottesloe Beach, Scarborough, a whole lot of different amazing beaches right in our city. And we also, it's a really hot place. So most summers, if you're not on the river or down the beach, you're around someone's pool in the backyard. And we see teaching people to swim isn't just an important life skill to actually have to survive here. It's actually a really important part to welcoming people to our to our country and to our culture and helping them to integrate and make friends here because it's such an important part of our social life here and we want people to feel welcome and we want them to have something in common to then find the other commonalities they have with people who already live here in Perth. That's awesome. So, you know, just to kind of dive into this a little bit then, you know, I'm sure you, I don't know if you're on Facebook or Snapchat or or whatever. Yes, I'm a millennial. I'm on all those things. <laughs> so... You're on all this social media and you, and you see all this news that's kind of pushed to you in this social media, right? So Facebook is death here. This person said that. This, you know, racial slander here, blah, blah, blah. And so I feel like at times we live in this world where just negativity and discord is so just negative, right? The headlines are everywhere. So thinking about yeah. that. So thinking about that. Do you do you think that most people in the world really want inclusion? Yeah, I think that that's I think it's a really relevant question for right now. I guess my opinion on this is also shaped a bit by 
uh, my thesis study was in political science and international relations, and it really looked at media constructions of people seeking asylum in Australia. And I think ultimately what's key to this is that people do want inclusion, but in times of fear, I think to make, to make themselves feel more secure, people try to other different groups. Because if you can make an us and a them and you're part of the us, you feel like you belong and you feel a lot more secure in what's going on with your life. And it's also someone also creating an other gives you kind of someone to blame for the problems currently existing. And I mean, I mean you said it, we're on social media, like we see it in the media, like not just on social media, but on the news, on the radio, all those types of things. Um, we've got climate change and global warming. And we know that we have governments that aren't doing very much about it. We've got I mean, here we're seeing the automation of labour was rising, like unemployment and underemployment, where young people are all kind of employed in these part-time jobs and don't seem to be able to get full-time permanent secure mm-hmm. gigs. Seeing a housing crisis where in most of our major cities in Australia, people can't afford to yeah. buy a house and probably never will be able to. It's so looming expensive. war, I mean, so expensive, so expensive. I've got friend, like friends paying crazy amounts for rent in one room in one house. But And there's also, I mean, we've got Trump as president. We've got North Korea firing missiles over Pan. You know, we've got a kind of leader of the free world or so instead that is threatening most people left, right and centre. doesn't seem very stable. So it's a, quite a scary time <laughs> and it's a scary yeah. time to be a young person. So I think that often, you know, if people try to reach for security whatever way they can yeah. and sometimes a way to feel secure is to push out others and say, they don't belong, but I belong. Mm-hmm. So I'm part of this us and I'm secure and those people are the unsecure people or to put the blame onto those people. And it's easy to blame people who are different to yourself. For so, I guess, so I guess then, like, I guess what is the need for inclusion? Like, why do we need it? Um, well, I think the first thing is that, like, I mean, <laughs> it seems like a kind of standard question because we all just accept that inclusion is kind of a good thing. But, but we don't do it. Exclusion that's, because, that, that's the yeah, problem. We don't, right? we don't do it. And you're you're taught it from like a young age, right? You're taught from a young age, no, don't leave other kids out. Don't leave, you know, it's not okay to do that. It's not okay to bully this kid. You have to let everyone join in your game. We're taught that from a young age, but we don't practice it. We don't, sure as hell don't practice it as adults. I I guess we need inclusion because that's, I think, how we can live our best lives. I mean, if you think about the inclusion of new cultures in, in Australia, it's so pertinent. Like you can follow through the generations and see how our country is like our cuisine improved, but not just our cuisine, our like our lifestyle and the things that happened as new cultures became part of this country. I mean, we had a mass wave of Italian migrants post-World War, Italian and some Greek migrants post-World War II, and with them they brought like a whole lot. And they've really faced barriers to inclusion when they first arrived, but over time were integrated. We had a whole lot of Vietnamese people in the 1970s and other groups that have come over different times. And each group, when they've initially arrived, has kind of faced barriers to inclusion, people like racism, people not understanding their culture. You know, there's everyday discrimination and also just speaking different languages. But over time, each of those groups has actually really become an integral part of who Australians are, who we see ourselves as, and the foods we eat and the things mm-hmm. that we do on weekends yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So, so let me ask you a question that's kind of off the beaten path because you hear this a lot and I heard it a lot growing up as well. And so I'm not I'm not sure how I feel about it or what my stance is because I know the po- politically correct stance, but but I'm going to ask the question anyways. So and I know when I lived in Australia, I heard this, and this and it would always go, if you come to the country, learn our customs, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to live here, do it our way. So is that really inclusion or is that saying uh, to be included? 
No, I, I think that that's not inclusion. I think that that's assimilation, which is a very different thing because that's erasing someone's culture. I, I think in terms of being included, like, and in terms of inclusion, there is always a level of meeting a bit halfway. Sometimes, you know, at some point, if you're both speaking different languages, it's very hard to, in the end, include one another. So there's that part of, you know, maybe you both learn each other's languages or, you you know, there's new slangs that are formed that kind of mix in both or, you know, well, the government can create like, policy. The government can create policies to help, and I'm sure there are some policies already in place, but but to help people who are moving to the country better assimilate, at least from a language perspective, because it is a fundamental tool to get by. It is a fundamental tool for inclusion, but I, I think that there are. I, I think it's like actually, it would be. It's almost a bit of. A, it's a. <laughs> it feels like a fallacy to me for people in Australia to say come to our country and learn our customs, because what are our customs like? Like Australian customs, we do have a guy's guess a distinct culture but it, our culture really because of the decimation of aboriginal people and their culture that existed here when colonists came really we kind of just stole english culture for a long period of time and suppressed anything else and then since then we've really built on it we've built and built on a whole different new waves of migrants from different parts of first europe and then asia and then africa and all other different sorts of places so our culture today is really it's Distinct to the place in sometimes our attitudes and the way we relate to people, but it it's really borrowed from a lot of different places. And I think it's been stronger because of that. Because I also think that like diversity doesn't just make for a richer life, but like the uniqueness between us actually allows us to problem solve better. And if you can bring in someone's cult, um, someone's cultural background and ideas that are different to your own, you can learn to do things in a new way, which might be better than what you were doing before. So I mean, you're clearly this person who has this compassion and drive to help people who are less fortunate than you. At least that's, I'm, I'm taking a stab based on the two different organizations you work for. Um, <laughs> Completely so, wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I am selfish. Um, so, <laughs> so why is inclusion so important to you personally? I think that for me, it really does come down to, I do have that firm belief that every human being is equal. And I think if you truly believe that human beings are equal and thus have an equal dignity, then you really have to act upon that in your life. To treat people as equally, we have to be we have to be able to include them. I also kind of think that inclusion is something that goes to the heart of what makes us like what makes humanity important or special. It's that we can go above the instincts of creating like you know maybe a long time ago we just created tribes and factions to survive and hunt and live but like the thing that makes humanity beautiful is that we've progressed beyond that to the point where we make decisions that inclusion is a beautiful good thing and allowing everyone to feel that really need and sense of belonging is important and I, I mean for me I guess I grew up there is that little I guess innate sense of there's a compassion for me and people who I think don't feel like they belong and aren't where, included. Where do you get that from um, though? I, I could never ever stand <laughs> I could just remember I could never stand to see a kid in the playground on their own, like a kid who was playing on their own or a kid who was being bullied or like didn't have any friends. That was a really, really hard thing for me and always felt the need to reach out to those. But I suppose my earliest memories, my parents run a homeless shelter. So for most of my life growing up, <laughs> for most of my life growing up, I saw firsthand and knew the people firsthand. I made connections firsthand with people who were homeless and I think people think about homeless people and they think some of the hardest things are poverty and not having a home and um, drug and alcohol abuse and these things. And these are all real big problems for the homeless community. 
But I think that the biggest that I've ever seen and the biggest that I still see is actually the loneliness. And a lot of the people who came to the shelter weren't necessarily always homeless. There were also people who lived in the area and were maybe poor or maybe they had no family or um, different things. And they came there to feel a sense of belonging and community. And I could see what that meant to them and what it meant for these people's lives that they hadn't had that. And I realised that that was one of the most important things that human beings needed and that you could give to somebody to improve the situation of their life and to help them live a better life. I was just going to say that makes a lot of sense. It connects a lot of dots when it comes from what you were raised in and what you're doing now. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. So then I guess, you know, in in the two different jobs that you do or, or careers or passions or maybe it's one passion divided over two different areas, um, how do you how do you foster inclusion in the work that you do? And do you have any examples in terms of how inclusion is used in your real life? Yeah, I think, I mean, what we do in the Swim for Refugees program is really all about inclusion. So the main purpose is essentially for, we now have about, we've so far taught 90 people to swim in the last year. And we've gone through about, we've had about 60 volunteers, most of them young university students and then other pe- some other people from the community. And I think the important thing that's really been there is cr- like forging friendships and relationships over cultural barriers that sometimes seem large. So we have a lot of people who come from like Afghanistan, a lot of like Hazara people um, who are of Muslim faith. We have a lot of people come uh, from the uh, from Somalia and from South Sudan. And we also have some people who come um, who are Tamil people from Sri Lanka. And so it's a really diverse and we've actually just had some Syrian people coming this semester. And there's people from a really diverse range of backgrounds, but you have all of those people there along with people who have been born here in Australia or have been born overseas in other countries and are living here and they're all standing around and they're all sharing pancakes and they're all talking about their life and they're all learning to swim together in the same classes. So I think in terms of fostering inclusion, one thing that's been really important in our work is having activities that are equalisers that everyone can do together and having things that doesn't matter what culture you're from, you can join in together and you can feel a part of that and you can find a shared sense of solidarity in that. I guess... Also in terms of fostering inclusion, I think it's important to also look at inclusion like as not just a what can we do always on a local scale, but also like systemically, what do we need to do to foster inclusion? And that's where the stuff, I guess, really with social reinvestment comes into play because we have a whole, we have generations of people in our country and specifically from a particular community, the Aboriginal community, who do not feel included in society. And you can see that in so many different ways. And they do not feel like they belong in a land that is actually their land originally. They are the traditional owners and custodians of this land and they never ceded sovereignty. And they're actually the people who feel like they belong the least in Australia. You 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 see see the same thing. You see see it in the States with the Native Americans. I mean, it's the exact same thing. You know, we, in in America, we we basically- It's very similar, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly similar. and, you know, we've, as a country, never even apologized. And then we just put them in, in the worst land possible and say, fend for yourself. And then it's just, it's, it's a very, the parallels are very, very similar between 
the Aboriginals, the Native Americans in terms of just their history, yeah. and, trajectory and how they've been treated. And, and the problems today are very similar to like mm-hmm. drug and alcohol abuse, yeah. lack um, of education, high prison rates, yeah. high kids going into child protection, lack of education, lack of economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, in you know, in some cases we've let them live out like on land and country for Aboriginal people is very important, the country that you're from. But then we don't provide any access to like economic opportunity in the modern world there so there's no capacity for them to get jobs we're like oh yeah you can live out in the country but we won't like the government won't support them into being able to develop enterprises out there and there's lots of opportunities out there i I guess the other thing is that here in australia we had the stolen generation i don't know if they had that in america i'm not sure if it was it's not the same thing in canada um it's 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 not quite the same i mean to, to the same extent same thing, like stolen generation, the idea of, of the American Indian, and I know also the Inuits and, and other natives up in Canada. All all similar stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can yeah, ball and, them up together. And and I think the hard thing is that we have these people who feel like they don't belong in this country. And actually, you also have a generation of people, like particularly white Australians, especially people who are my age and didn't live through the period where stolen generation was happening, where we were removing children from their families because we thought that native families weren't able to raise their children correctly because just simply because they were native. We like removed those children and we didn't live through the 1967 referendum where they finally got the right to vote and be citizens. We didn't live through any of that. And so you have this kind of generation now who looks at young Aboriginal people and go, well, why are they committing crimes or why are they like drinking on the street or why are they causing a problem in this park? And they don't necessarily always have the systemic understanding that this is a multi-generational issue and it actually started by something that we were we caused in the first place but it helps it further promotes that exclusion of them because you have this then generation of people that doesn't understand why this other generation of people is like that and then that's where the stereotyping you know even further divides oh exactly exactly where stereotyping starts so so i have one more question for you so you know you you live in this world of inclusion but you also know that historically, many people, when it comes to the discussion of just other, don't really go past diversity, right? And so I guess the bigger question that I have is, how do we actually start to engage constructively with each other to increase and embrace the differences, not increase the differences, but embrace the differences leading to more inclusion? It's kind of this big, big question. Yeah, this is a big question. <laughs> I think in the same way as everything, it's twofold. You need to have system change. Um, there needs to be policies that kind of promote inclusion from a high level. But also it really needs to start locally with communities welcoming people and then getting civically engaged. I think when I look around at the groups where I'm in, where there are lots of people from different communities who are included and involved and part of it 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 really started because there was a community and that community welcomed people and then they didn't just welcome people it's then you inclusion doesn't just mean like inviting someone to sit at the table it invites them to have that kind of voice um, and empowering them to then be able to take action so I'd also think it involves enabling people and building people's skills so that people from all different walks of life do have the ability to e- engage and build the society around you it's a tricky question I guess it's, it's really I, hard I think division, no. yeah yeah I don't yeah, use any I, easy I, I way think, to answer it yeah and it, there really isn't but I mean there's things you can do locally at a local community level like you know that start by reaching out and saying hello and welcome 
And then there's those greater things where you go, okay, we've got these people from all different walks of life. How do we make sure each of these people has an equal footing? And that can be something that's done locally and that can also be something that's done at a system level. And that's really, I think, where where people sometimes go wrong is that they go, oh, well, we've said welcome and we've included them, so that's it now. Yeah. <laughs> but if you really want to engage and have, like, proper inclusion, you need to then enable every single person at the table to have the ability to engage and build the world around them. So that means, I mean, you see it, for example, in places, some, some of the European countries have done really well at welcoming a lot of refugees. But what we haven't necessarily seen is a corresponding system of education and social community inclusion support that happen at the same time so that that person can begin to navigate what their life is like in this new world and develop the skills to succeed in that society so they can bring the beautiful, wonderful parts of their culture and their life over to this new country in a successful way, whilst what you often see is then those people aren't given the tools to succeed and then you get things like ghettos and stuff Mm -hmm. forming, which doesn't, which isn't good inclusion. You know, you've included them in the boundaries of your country, but you haven't included them in your society. And that's what's, I guess, really important. Well, I will say that uh, I love your enthusiasm, passion, and your intellect on this topic is just awesome. So thank you so, so much, Sophie Stewart, for your time, energy, and willingness to sit down with me on the Pursue Inclusion UWA podcast initiative. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, James, all the way from the Middle East. It's great. Thanks for listening to UWA Alumni's Pursue Inclusion podcast series. Make the commitment to leave no one behind by taking part in our movement towards an inclusive society. Join an inclusion project or inspire others to act through the great work you are already doing by visiting pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au.